So I remember your story. You were talking about um, just basically working yourself to death. Yeah. You want, you want yeah. In that? all areas, like perfect. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, okay. So what do story do you want to hear in terms of like why I do the style of coaching that I do? Um, like, how'd you find it? Like, how'd you, cause I think uh, the, the people, the surgeons who are here, they're all female surgeons and they're, yeah. I, I would say a lot of them are new to coaching. Okay. And so this group is kind of like their first introduction to like what mind work is and goal setting and like seeing thoughts. So kind of mm-hmm. like how you discovered maybe how you discovered coaching and then where you took that into maybe being a business. Love it. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So my story starts where, um, you know, I was, you know, to the typical, I was a high achiever. I am a high achiever, but I was like very particularly like un- mind, unmanaged mind overachiever way back then. And, you know, went through the whole process of becoming a physician and, you know, did my pediatric residency, did my fellowship in neonatology and then decided we would have our first kid. And so we did. And I was not prepared because I, despite living with a psychiatrist, um, developed pretty significant postpartum depression and we didn't recognize. It. So I, I didn't know that I was depressed because I was having obsessive thoughts, but not like thoughts that I wanted to hurt the baby. Like it was nothing like that, but it was like very obsessive, like something bad is going to happen. Like I kept thinking people were going to break in our house. Like it was just really bizarre kind of for, you know, my typical. And so finally I had a friend who said, do you think you might have postpartum depression? And I was like, oh, okay. And I, I did. And so I knew that I had to develop better tools in terms of you know, the thoughts. And so my husband's a psychiatrist and recommended CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy, and he found a psychologist in the area. And so I, you know, enrolled and signed up to like, go start seeing a therapist. And at this point I did not start taking meds because I knew for me that I maybe meds would be, but I knew I also needed therapy. And so started it and it was really powerful and almost immediately. So within about three weeks, I can remember feeling significantly better to the point where like I had a script in my hand for meds, but was like, huh, I don't know. And so I wound up really being able to work through it in a way that I um, came out of the postpartum depression and then just realized, wow, I don't know how I didn't know about that before, but whatever that was, like, I need more of that. And like, we all could probably use some of that. And so then it was a couple of years later, several years later, and I still didn't know about coaching. I didn't know what that was. And I actually attended Kathy Stepien's uh, retreat. Um, when she does the Institute of Physician Wellness and she did retreats and she had one. And I can remember there was another, there was other physician coaches from the life coach school that were going to be at this retreat. And I remember going and I was blown away. I was thinking, wait, so doctors can be coaches and coach other doctors and like everybody's life is better. That is like, wait, whoa. I was like, so blown away that like, this was a thing. And so then when I did more research, I realized that the thought model that's used in the, at the life coach school is a derivative of really the CBT triad. So thoughts create feelings, create behaviors. And I was like, okay, so you're saying that I could get like certified to help 
people by using this tool. And I don't have to go back and become a psychologist or, a, <laughs> or anything like that. Like I could actually learn this tool. Um, and I was just sold. And so I can remember leaving that conference and going home and signing up to be a life coach. I, I didn't even think about it too much. I just knew that this was, this helped me, this kind of strategy helped me. And, and how could I potentially either help myself more at that point? It wasn't even about, I didn't know if I'd have a business. I just knew I wanted to do this. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then from there, um, I was in this transition of my career. I was full-time neonatologist and I just had my second, I had just had my second baby. This, she was probably maybe 10 months old by the time I'd gone to this retreat and whole bit. And I realized that I couldn't picture myself sleeping in the hospital for 28 hours until I was 65. Like to me, it just like, I, I said, how am I gonna, I know I want to work. I like working. I actually really do like having like a career and having a balance and being excited to do something, but just the whole idea of what that looked like for me. And a big characteristic of me is I don't like to feel like I'm being controlled. Like I like to have freedom and I never felt like I had freedom with the job that I was at because I signed up to be a neonatologist. And apparently you got to be in the hospital, like when people have babies and stuff like that. So fast forward, I was going through a transition at work and wound up getting this really rare opportunity to be a national medical director for Optum Health on their neonatal team which would require me to leave my clinical medicine job and join this team, which was a virtual team. And I had a lot of hangups about that because I was really worried about what other people would think. So I remember just kind of thinking, well, people are going to think I sold out or how can I possibly tell my dad that I'm not going to be a full-time clinical doctor anymore. But truth be told, we were really struggling from a personal standpoint with our family. So we had three nannies. We had four babysitters. Mark was working nonstop. We never saw each other. I was working all the time and it just was not a good setup. And so I knew that the right thing was to have a more manageable, consistent schedule. So I took the job and Mark said, if you don't take the job, I'm going to sign the paper for you because we're taking this job because it was it was actually a higher salary. It was no holidays, no weekends. And it was nine to five from home. Fine. Like I did it. I, I took the plunge. I said, okay. So I still continued to moonlight a little bit at the NICU. And then I took this job, but what I figured out was it, and I should probably back up. So at the time I went to this physician wellness conference by Kathy Stepien, this was during the time of this transition into this non-clinical role. So I became a coach at the time I took the non-clinical role. And so what happened was, as I was in the non-clinical role, I realized that huh, grass isn't greener, still got to follow the schedule and kind of like be on everyone else's terms, really. So the freedom wasn't there that I was really craving. And that was fine. But what I realized was, wow, I'm really enjoying coaching. Like I started getting, a, I started just coaching everybody and anybody who would let me coach them. And so I, at the time I was really interested in relationship coaching. And so we used to have, my husband and I used to have a podcast on relationships, but I remember I would do all these free groups. I had tons of them. Like I just kept coaching people and coaching people and I really, really loved it. Um, and so I said, gosh, you know what? This could really be a thing. And, and that's like, I, I don't remember the exact date I said that, but I said that. And then I just started creating and I created my first program. And my first program was called the mind body marriage course. 
right? We work on our mind, we work on our body because a big underlying theme for me is, as I'm really, obviously now the work I do is, is very much uh, has a big physical aspect to it. So body and then marriage, because we did a lot of relationships, but also a play on word, like mind married to your body, mind, body connection. And that's still what I promote and teach. And it just began to kind of evolve. And then I made a ton of mistakes and I paused and pivoted a billion times. And then I rebranded my brand. And today, you know, I can honestly say I'm probably I guess four and a half years in now on this business journey. And I honestly don't feel like I'm working. It's so much fun. I can't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Some days I feel like, what have I done? <laughs> Like, this is really hard, but I still, I, I do believe that this is the path that I was, I was meant to be on. And I think my impact here is, is greater than it, than it ever was in any of the other roles that I had before. So, so it feels really good, but that's kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> I love it. Well, I remember we talked about this when I just saw you, but I'm trying to remember your Enneagram. I want to say you're a three or a five. Six. Six. I was with the whole like not being controlled thing. I was like, well, I know she's not an eight. I know. So I'm a six, but I think where that where that plays in is that you know sixes seek security, um, and so maybe it is more of a sense of like, yes, I want the security, which would make sense in a nine to five job that gives me a W two, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm what. But then I learned more advanced that I'm a challenger. So I'm a six, but I'm a challenger of the six, which means anything that makes me uncomfortable, I go after. So if I don't feel secure, I go after it. So I can tell you, they're like, well, because when I did my neonatology rotation, I was like, this is really scary. And so sure enough, I became a neonatologist because I, I lean into the things that make me uncomfortable because I don't want them ever to make me uncomfortable. Again. Right, right. You want to conquer them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So the, for the people who are on, raise your hand if you want to be coached. And I mean, I'm getting the feeling that you can really coach them on anything that's coming up. We're sure. in our quarter where we did mind. Now we're in the body quarter. Then we'll do spirit and work as far as our year goes. Okay. So we're in our body uh, quarter, but we're not strict to that by any means. I love it. Yeah, so I'm we'll, in. I'm we'll in. Anything goes. Who wants to come on and be coached? Raise your hand. We'll see if anybody is able to, or maybe they're just listening. And I'm also happy to, you just, you guide me, you tell me what you want. And I'm happy to talk about anything and everything. Um, you, you just tell me what would be useful for you, for your people. Cool. Cool. We'll we'll give them a second to raise their hand. Otherwise they can type in the chat if they have any questions about it. Um, while we're waiting for them, can you, how did you get into like, I think of you as like the fitness exercise mindset person. Yep. And so, so either tell me I'm wrong or tell me like, how how did you like fall into seeing that that's what people needed? Yeah. So I think the, well, I mean, my story is pretty raw and deep, but just to give you another nutshell story. um, So I, I fell into the diet culture at the ripe age of about nine. Um, I was an overweight kid and my family did not hesitate to tell me that. And because of that developed a lot of body image issues, a lot of food issues, um, which is really interesting because I'm actually using genetics now with some of the um, health work, the health optimal health work I do. And it turns out that, you know, there's genes that control your satiety and, uh, I happen to have one that is a variant, which actually makes me have less satiety. 
which is super interesting because I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously now I have tools and skills, but when I was a kid, like I, I didn't. So long story short, um, I really didn't have a lot of body confidence from a young age, but then discovered athletics. And so that was the area that I really stood out in because I was my adult size by the age of 12. So I was really good at sports. I was really coordinated. I was really strong and I got noticed for that. So I got positive attention for that. And because of it, it really just made me believe that I'm an athlete. And so really kind of dove into everything, you know, athletics, but I will tell you that those books behind me are all nutrition books because I became almost obsessed. So at the time it wasn't probably healthy, but I came very obsessed with understanding everything there was to know about nutrition exercise. And I, and I loved it. Like I still do to this day, I love learning about it. So I did recently get certified in obesity medicine just because I love the science of it. So with all that being said, um, I, once I kind of figured things out for myself, I made some huge changes. So I went to college to play a sport and I became pretty heavy. So I was probably 50 pounds heavier than I am right now, but I was, I was very muscular, but I also had a lot of additional body fat. But I think what happened was I knew that it wasn't my optimal health. Um, and I didn't feel healthy. I didn't feel great. I was playing a division one sport, but I like was not in my, in my best health. And so I kind of made that decision right before medical school. I was about 21 years old. And I said, I'm not going to live like this. Like, I'm not going to not take care of myself. Like, I really want to feel good in my body. So I call it showing up for our authentic bodies. So I don't preach like being thin. I don't care what you weigh, but I care about ladies understanding their natural, unique body type so that we can set realistic goals for it and then optimize it. And so that's what I did for myself. And that was my 32 year self-experiment on figuring out, you know, what nutrition strategy uh, could work. And so I, while maintaining an intuitive approach, so I use intuitive with, uh, I have a nutrition program that I've um, trademarked, it's called mindful macros. And so I use intuitive eating with basically the science of what you would use from calculated macros but it's in a mindful way. So I can teach somebody how to eyeball what their body would require from a fuel standpoint. So they never have to weigh, measure, food prep, do any of that, but they can essentially eyeball with using skills of intuitive eating. And because that was such a transformative part of my whole entire life, I just started doing that for people. So early on, even before I became a coach, I was doing nutrition, you know, nutrition counseling stuff. And I was writing workout routines and, and all that type of stuff. Cause I really had a great understanding for it. And I love doing it. So what happened was the mindset piece was always missing from that, right? Cause I didn't have that mindset piece for years. I mean, I didn't at all. Well, once I really started understanding the emotional aspects of eating and that, and that was a big thing for me, I was very much an emotional eater um, and how to actually learn how to navigate urges in a way where we're not trying to take the full force of the feeling straight on, but we're trying to actually decrease the intensity of the, of the feeling so that we can better process it. That's one of the techniques I use, but it just really started to all fit together. So what happened was my, my passion for exercise and helping women become strong. Like that's what I care about at the end of the day. And then my thirst for really understanding more of the science. So one of the things that happens in, in the diet world is everyone gets put on this like random one size fits all approach. And, you know, especially when 
and, and not that I have anything against fasting. I have plenty of people that use fasting, but when fasting happened and then the high fat, low carb, I had a lot of clients who were doing high fat, low carb fasting. Plus they were doing all this exercise on average, they were losing 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. So I use, I don't care about the scale weight, but I do use an analysis type tool for body composition because I care way more about that. And so my goal is to help women maintain their lean muscle mass, especially as we age, because once we hit about 35, we start losing a little bit, but maintain their muscle mass if they want to lose fat. So I don't like to, I don't consider myself a weight loss coach. I consider myself a body composition coach. So maintain muscle mass lose body fat, or if they want to gain muscle, so gain muscle so they can overall potentially, if they're looking to decrease body fat percentage, they can do that by actually increasing the muscle mass. So two different strategies. So I really try to educate people and say like, if you're trying to lose fat and gain muscle, great, we can do them both just not at the same time because they are different strategies. And so I think just all of the, the science really excites me along with really making differences in people's lives. So it's, it's physicians who, right. Like a lot of, a lot of the people I work with just, you know, were athletes like back in the day or in a prior life. And they say, I just lost myself. Like things got so busy and I just want to get myself back versus I have, I have a lot of ladies who are coming in who never had weight issues. So tend to be the more naturally thin ectomorph. And they're like, I don't want to get osteoporosis. I, can you help me? And that's really fun. That's like a really fun body type to work with. And so I think like the body acceptance piece comes in with understanding uniquely how we're made and then finding a strategy that's really, I think, intuitive meets gentle meets um, science to be able to commit to it. And then finally, like really using the mindset work for this long game strategy so that we can marry the journey and not the result. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think one thing that would be helpful for our group is the concept of not enough time. Yes. In, in general, in, in our life, like I don't have time for me, right. Or like enough time to do these other things. Do you want to talk about how you coach people on like time scarcity mindset and like prioritizing yourself? Yeah. I love that. It's, it's so good. Yeah. I have, I have a tool that I'll share like also when I talk about this, but I'll just in general kind of talk about um, the time scarcity, but I'll tell you, so it's, it's, that is, I will say the, biggest, I probably hear it every day, even on somebody who's already been coached on it. And I say it and I coach on it because I'm not immune to having time scarcity, right? Like it comes up. So what I'll say is that as it pertains most commonly in my world, it's usually, I don't have time to eat healthy meals. I don't have time to meal prep. I don't have time to exercise. I feel guilty if I've worked all day and then come home and ignore my family and then exercise. 10 minutes won't do anything. Um, so I get a lot of this idea of in order to be where they want to be in terms of their optimal health, that they need a lot of time and they need like really complicated strategies. And so much of the opposite is true. And so really where we start to work with the time scarcity is that I, they have to commit, they have to agree to agree that they can't say, I don't have time. They have to say to me, I choose not to have time for that. Right. So they have to, they have to, right. So good. It's like so different, right? It's like, I'm not saying I don't do this. Like I do the same crap, but it's like, I, Allie, I didn't do the module because I chose not to have time for this week. And that's all I want to hear. I'm like, awesome. Way to own that. 
And I think that when we are able to own it in that way, then we realize actually the time is within our control. And I always say, okay, you guys, I have like something really important to say, and you're going to have to get your journal and your pen because you're going to write it. You have to write it down. And then I say, there are only 24 hours in a day. Like I just write it down because I, I can't give you more hours in a day. So it, it's up to you how you're going to use that time. Okay. So we get past that point, right? So then we can say, okay, okay. Yes, I can own it. I choose even despite. And then usually again, as it pertains, cause I'm dealing a lot with the health and wellness stuff. Um, it's about getting them to commit to the minimum amount of exercise they're willing to do each week. And so a lot of times I have people coming in saying, yeah, but I'm getting by. I don't really need the exercise. Like I heard, I don't have to exercise if I want to lose weight anyway. So I might as well not. But I mean, we know there are, you know, I mean, you're like huge athlete. Like there's so many benefits to exercise, right? So yeah. we get them to commit to something really small. And in fact, one of the strategies I use, and again, like, yes, I can coach their mindset fine but I can also like offer some strategies so that they can start believing that, Oh, you're right. I can find time in here. So I do, I do like to do a little mix of both, but non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that's like an obesity medicine term. We call it neat. So essentially that's how many steps you get in a day. And what I can tell you is all the studies out there show that the NEAT, the non-exercise activity thermogenesis versus EAT, which is act exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's your planned exercise. So it's like, you're, I'm gonna do strength training today, or I'm gonna do my Peloton, or I'm gonna go for a run, or I'm gonna do my beach body, whatever. We know that long-term the NEAT potentially has more ability to help us maintain kind of our, I'm gonna call it body composition. I'm just gonna call it that. Cause, but we, now all the studies are shame, saying that. So a lot of the people that are just straight obesity medicine doctors are, are just encouraging that with their patients. And so what I say is that maybe right now that's your focus. And so if we're getting less than 5,000 steps a day, that's considered sedentary. If we're getting over 5,000, we're fairly active. 10,000, I mean, it's, it's actually like not a magic number. You can right. do it's made right, up, right? right? I was, I was looking at like, where did the 10,000 come from? And somebody just made it up. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, but if you're walking 10,000 steps a day, like it's, you're walking like five miles a day. It's legit. It's legit. And so I get people to start there. And so they're like, wait, and I'm not even kidding you. So when we're in time scarcity, we also let ourselves go in confusion. So typically we're like, so how do I track that? Like, how would I figure that? Do I have to count? And like our, our phones can do it. Or I have a, I have a Fitbit. I am very old school and I just like simple technology. Like I have a Fitbit. And so I just say, I like how Fitbit is old school now. <laughs> I know. Put your old school Fitbit on. Put your old school Fitbit on. Yeah. So I just say, start there. And I'm like, because you don't need extra time for that. Right. And so I think when people start seeing that, like there can be time within time. And so I have usually when people start the neat steps, and they've never done it before. They say, how is anybody getting 5,000? Because I'm getting 3,000. I'm like, see, so that's your focus. Then we focus there. So once they catch the bug with this, I find that with exercise in terms of the time scarcity, once they take action and start doing it and they feel better, they're like, oh, wow, I feel better. Oh, all of a sudden I feel like I have more time. This is, I don't, it's really interesting. And, and then I think that promotes their curiosity on, okay, I got my neat steps. What's next? 
And so then I say, okay, well, what's the minimum amount of EAT exercise activity thermogenesis that you want to commit to on a weekly basis? I usually have them commit on a weekly basis. So like in my, I always do an accountability thread. Like that's one of the things that I always have. And so I have them kind of commit to what's their baseline minimum or what's the minimum amount they're going to do of EAT that week. And because I promote obviously the body composition work, strength training is one of the things I promote. And, you know, I say to really maintain good muscle mass, especially if you're in a calorie deficit for losing, um, you know, three 15 minute sessions of strength training a week or one hour, if you want to do a longer one hour session a week, that's going to help you maintain at least if you want to build, that's going to be a little different, but in terms of maintaining. So then I, you know, that encourages them. They're like, wait a minute, what? I only need to show up one time. And so actually one of the ways I actually program one of my things is that we have one workout a week. Cause I want to show them that you don't need any more time to get results. So it's strategic because I'm trying to like prove the point that, can, do you have an hour in a week? Like, do you have one hour? Like, that's all I'll say. And so then they start, then the language I think becomes different. So I think when the language becomes different on the time, then we can really kind of work into realizing that that scarcity is something that we are creating. Mm-hmm. Huge. What about, uh, I don't have time to prepare vegetables. Yeah, this is so good. So then I say, okay, great. Perfect. Well, I have, I have like, a lot of thoughts on that too, but, um, I say, okay, so why do you want to eat vegetables? And then I, I kind of get into like, well, why do they want to? Cause my whole point is like, if you want to, you will, but if you choose not to, then you won't. And so usually, right. Like, so, cause so then I say, all right, do me a favor. Do you have an, do you have an air fryer? So like one of my favorite cooking tools is an air fryer because it's so easy and you could literally put frozen broccoli in the air fryer with some olive oil, 375 for 10 minutes. And it is amazing because it crisps the broccoli and then you put some olive oil on it and some salt and it, it, it it's amazing. And they do it and they're like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. I have people buying air fryers and bringing them into the hospital, like or into the <laughs> office. So like, that's the strategy, but I, I, I think it's coming to terms with like, they have, they think they overcomplicating, right? So I need to meal prep or have prep containers or things and have all these different like variety of meals for this to work. So I usually then go back to say, okay, do you choose to eat vegetables or not? But then like, even going back a step further, I say, well, what is your primary goal for your nutrition? And I just have them commit to the goal because if they say, I want to lose fat, if they say I want to gain muscle, if they say I want more energy, if they say I want to improve my fitness, if they say I want to reduce my cholesterol, they say I want to improve my hemoglobin A1C, then we can essentially use the, I like to use the 2080 rule, like the Pareto principle. So I want to help them strategize like their 20% effort to get their 80% results. Yeah. So, right. So like if somebody is like, I want to lose body fat, I'm going to be like, okay, well, like, do you have to eat vegetables to lose body fat? Like, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I recommend it, but like, but like, I'm going to call like, I think it's taking ownership because we'll tell ourselves these stories. Like, I'm going to give you a perfect example. And I can totally tell you who it is. Cause she is very open about it and lets me use the story, but another coach. And again, I like saying that we're all coaches because I don't want anybody to feel like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like I do this stuff and I teach it. Right. But um, our, our good buddy, Linda, she was really, really resistant. 
she's like, I know I need to make changes for myself, but I'm really resistant. I'm like, okay, let's get into it. Her whole issue. She's actually not an emotional eater. Her whole issue is that it's too complicated. Like I, I don't know how to cook. I don't want to make things. So I'm like, great. I'm going to give you she, and her goal. She's like, I want to lose body fat. I'm like, great. Let's give you a plan. All right. And so literally I gave her, and again, I don't, I'm not advocating for this, but I probably gave her the most processed menu I could think of to help her get to her goal because it was so easy and convenient. She's lost like 35 pounds. I'm not even kidding you because her thought was, I don't have time to prep healthy meals. I can't make vegetables. And while I wholeheartedly agree that vegetables are a great idea, her primary goal was fat loss. So I think it's like really getting into the nitty gritty of like really what you want. And then what obstacles are your, is your brain putting up to prevent you from moving forward? And a lot of times it's because we've maybe tried weight loss or fat loss in the past and it was hard and, and it failed and we felt like a failure. And so then we overgeneralize that this time is going to just be the same. So why would we want to do it anyway? Because we're going to have to do things like meal prepping and vegetables and weighing our stuff. And so I think at the end of the day, like that part is just getting clear on like the why of it. Yeah. And then you're like, life is not going to be fun for the rest of my life. Basically. Right. Yeah. I think there's a big component of like shoulding too. Like I should do this much exercise. I should do this much vegetables. And you're like, uh, against the like should of it all. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yes. And so with that, okay. I love it because what like part of like what, what my, so my program is called mindful macros. And so we, we do have other principles involved with it. And one of them is like, there are no bad foods. And so the reason why I do that, I mean, clearly like you can call me out and say like, is sugar bad? I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go with no, because like it, no, from a mental standpoint, because if we say no, then it's, it's available to you. Um, and so the idea is with the shoulds, I always tell everyone when they're, when they're going with, well, I shouldn't have eaten the ice cream or I shouldn't have eaten off my plan. Then that's just going to feed into the all or none thinking, which is like, well, I already did it. Might as well just like really do it now. But so what I teach, like come up, some of the thought strategies that I use are two, two. The first one is get snobby with your extras. So, you know, I recommend in general, like that you're eating, you know, balanced and you're eating your all the time foods. There are no bad foods. So all your all the time foods, but the things that are your sometimes foods, right. Get snobby with them. So if the bread comes back and it's like, not that good and it's like stale and like the cinnamon extra sugary homemade butter is amazing. Then like, don't eat the bread, but eat the butter. Like, just like if you're craving chocolate in your house and you find a half open Kit Kat, that's kind of stale, like don't eat it, like go to the store, get something really good and just like, and enjoy it because you're, you're worth that. So I, I really try to get behind, like in terms of like alcohol, people are like, well, how much alcohol can I drink and like still get to my goal? And I say, you can have alcohol, just get really snobby with it. So like, if the wine tastes like vinegar, like don't drink it, just don't drink it. And that adds up over time. And people feel really empowered with that. And the second one that I really like to use is just make the next best decision. So when they're in the should, okay, fine, it's done. What's the next best decision you can make? And so I even say that you can use that strategy like mid meal. 
Like you could be eating this meal and you're like, okay, well, the nachos were good. And, oh, this pizza is so good. And I haven't had this in two weeks because I can't, this is a bad food, right? Like right there at the moment, you can say, okay, well, well, I'm doing all this weird stuff in my head. All I have to do is make the next best decision. Yeah, so those two strategies right there, when we go into like the shoulds and, and kind of some more of those all or nones or anything, like I find those to be really effective. Awesome. I love it. Uh, a couple more people have popped on. So let me just offer to them, raise your hand. If you want to come on for coaching, Allie can coach on anything really, but whatever Including you want. Laundry. I actually okay. coached on laundry the other day, which was, I probably need coaching on laundry. I got coached my two favorite food ones. I got coached on asking my nanny to chop carrots for me. And I got coached. I got coached on uh, my caramel latte addiction and why I thought I, I deserved it every day. That was powerful. So yeah. Like, what did you come to? What, tell me what, what did you come to? Um, well, I can't give it up because I deserve it. And so she was basically like, why do you deserve it? What does deserving mean? And it was like, just this deep dive into like why I thought I deserved something in the middle of the day. And like, it was like this complex thing. And I'm like, man, I got that all from a freaking caramel latte conversation. It was awesome. It is, well, okay. So that's what I think is amazing when people come in and they're like, and this is like really good, but like, I don't have anything to be coached on. Like I'm, I'm nothing's coming up for me. I don't have anything or, or somebody will come on and will say, this is really, this is really silly. And I feel silly. So if somebody else wants to go, like if somebody else wants to go, it's totally fine. This is really dumb. And it's like literally the deepest crap you'll ever get to. I'm like, okay. So that was dumb. Okay. And it was literally like my, I'm like, I, I don't even know what to say about that. And so I, and I don't know about you, but like, well, what, let me ask you this. Like when people ask you, like, when should I do my like thought downloading when I'm downloading, when I'm feeling bad or, or when I'm feeling really good, do you like have an answer for that? What do you tell them? I just tell them to do it no matter what. Yes. <laughs> because for my brain, my brain's like, I need to have enough time to do it. Like that's yeah. my brain's excuse yeah. for it. Yeah. We have time to do it. And like, that's actually means you have the perfect time to do it. Right. Yeah. I love it. Similar, but yeah. So I love that. But yeah, the stuff that comes out with nothing. So then I always try to challenge myself when I feel like everything's good. I'm like, maybe everything's good, but what else is in there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Like the, the superficial hum is yeah. quiet. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. My latte thing, it was like, all right. So if I do think I deserve something freaking enjoy that caramel latte. Yes. Like enjoy it big time. Cause you are deserve. Like it was like, yes, it turned it to really be appreciating it when I did have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I still drink them. Oh, but, I love, yeah. I love a good caramel. Yeah. I think that's the, the sugar, sugar addiction thing that we all struggle with. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I actually, okay. So I'll just like, that's my other thing. So like, we recently, I was recently at a, on a trip and, you know, you know, you're on vacation. And, and so I usually try to, and what I teach is like, there's the intuitive, there's the mindful eating, and then there's the calculated macro eating. And like, I, I like to have all three of the tools. Um, but when I'm on vacation, I stick more to like more of the intuitive, which is really just like, really, I use it to like reconnect with my body. I use it to, you know, reconnect my relationship with food, but I'll tell you that typically it does involve like a bit more sugar, right? Cause I'm not as, and, um, so I came home from this past trip and yeah, there was a, there was a lot of desire around other. So like, you know, the food desire, right. That does come up with sugar for some people. I'm, I'm one of those people for sure, but it's interesting because then it's about 72 hours, I say of, of kind of cutting that. And then that's going to be a huge difference. 
you're saying if you can re- not resist the urge, but like be aware of the urge and not react to it by 72 hours, it's, it's already better. Yes. It's 72 hours is what I find. Um, it's in some, for some people it's less. So if you're less, um, it just depends, but I'd say for some people in like two days, it's, but I say for most people about 72 hours, if you're just, and and how I teach like the resist, the urge, the whole thing is Mm -hmm. I have a little technique and I'll just share it with you. But I usually say recognize the emotion first. So because I, a lot of the work we do is, um, is emotional eating based. So for example, like, and I used to be a pretty big emotional eater. Um, and so what would happen would be for me, it's restless. So my trigger is like overwhelm. And then from there, I I usually feel really restless. And for me, restless, I'm actually seeking comfort. Like, so I know that I'm seeking comfort, but I'm really restless and restless is a really interesting emotion because it's usually relentless. Like it's this really irritating, fast emotion that sometimes the only way to stop it is to like numb it out. Mm-hmm. And so, so many of us that tend to be like raiding the pantry at night when also like we're tired, a lot of decision fatigue from the day, plus our ghrelin, our hunger hormone might be higher because we're stressed. We usually like hit up the pantry. So recognize the emotion. If you can say what the emotion is out loud, it reduces the intensity sometimes by about 50%, which is like pretty significant. Yeah. There's like research that shows that decreases the intensity by about 50%. So I feel restless. I'm like, Oh, I'm restless. Now I can spend some more time and dive into why I think I'm restless. And that would probably help. But the next part's the most important part, 90 seconds. So it takes about 90 seconds to feel like the intensity of that emotion and then have it come down. So if you can name the emotion and you decrease the intensity, and then you, for the 90 seconds, just practice breathing or mindfulness techniques for that 90 seconds. At the end of that time, you'll have a much more manageable emotion. That's when I say to go ahead and just allow it in your body, like really get to know it, see what it feels like, because it's not going to be so overpowering that it just makes you want to jump in the pantry, but it's going to be manageable. And then that's how I say we can start to really retrain kind of more of that neuroplasticity to the point where now when I get that, I don't go in the pantry, but I stand at my island, which is just outside. So my brain still wants to do it, but like I've programmed myself enough where I'm not doing it, but I do go to my island. I stand at it. I'm like, whoa, I know what's going on here. That's awesome. That's so good. Um, Mm -hmm. Somebody said, can you talk about how you made your brain okay with leaving clinical medicine? That's good. Yeah, that's a really good one. I love that. Um, it took a lot. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, and just backstory. My, so my dad's a physician, his office was in our house growing up. So literally I lived in a doctor's office growing up. My two brothers are both physicians. My husband's a doctor. His father's a doctor. Like we have a lot of doctors around us. So the day that I realized I was going to have to go and tell everyone that I'm leaving clinical medicine, I had a big, I had a, I had an identity crisis, if you will. And so I think because I really do define myself as a physician first, like I I do. And so I, I believed that if I left clinical medicine, a couple of things would happen that I was giving up my identity as a physician. I believed that people would respect me less. I believed that, um, people would just think I burnt out and I couldn't handle it. And that's why I left. So if you see the theme, 
it was really about me being worried about what other people would think. But with that theme of how did I feel about it myself? And so once, so what I did is I tackled it like stepwise. The first tackle was what other people thought. Now, fortunately I had coaching. So fortunately, right. Because if I didn't, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, yeah. I, would you have done it two years prior? No. Had you not had coaching? No, because I'll tell you what, the first coach I ever worked with, I said to her, I mean, we can coach all you want, but I'm not going to leave clinical medicine because it's the most stable profession. I literally told her that I said, I'm not leaving. So like I, we can talk about everything else, but like, we can't talk about that. Cause I'm not leaving. So no, but then I, that's, she was my first coach and then I got coaching and then I realized, and this is what I learned from coaching, but, um, people are going to be wrong about me anyway. So I'd rather do what I actually in my heart want to do and let them be wrong anyway, because like what they think doesn't matter only if I let it matter. And what, what's at stake if I let what they think matter my whole life is at stake if I let what they think matter. So that thought really helped me get past like what others thought. And don't get me wrong. Like I had friends who, when they heard I was becoming a coach, completely mock me. Like, what is she doing? Like this, what's the coach? Like, what is she doing? And these were people like in neonatology, like saying kind of the same things. And, and I heard about it through, you know, but at that point I was really over it. Like, I was like, well, that's funny. And now they're like coming to me, like asking what they should do, like with their, cause they're burnout. And so I'm like, oh, I can coach you. Cause remember that thing you used to like joke about, well, that's what I do. It's really funny <laughs> anyway. So, so I think coming to terms with allowing people to be wrong about me that I learned that in coaching for sure. The next step was how did I feel about it? And so when I did a big self-evaluation about like me and my relationship with clinical medicine, I asked myself, what did I want? And it's amazing to be able to like save a life. Right. And to be able to, I mean, I, I get to see babies come into the world. Like it's special, but like that never has to go away from me or who I am that I always have that. I, I always will have that. And, um, and also like, I just get to choose what I want to do with it going forward. And so I figured it out that really what I wanted was impact. Like I went into medicine for impact. Like I wanted to change people's lives. And so once I identified that in terms of how did I get past, like going from non-clinical medicine to then coaching, like, I think what it really came down to was the idea of my impact is greater in this space. Because if I can impact just one physician who can impact all of their patients, like that's way bigger impact than I could get. And, and it's the impact that brings me joy because I had somebody the other day and it was just literally a free challenge I did. And I talked all about body acceptance and I talked all about body types. And she used that knowledge with one of her adolescent pa patients the next day. And both the mom and the daughter were like, like just so overtaken with like joy and just like they were able to understand it and to be able to like have some more acceptance themselves. And that was just like with one interaction. And so I think that when I started creating the language around how much impact I have non-clinically, I can't imagine going back now. Like 
And I didn't burn out and became a coach. Like I wasn't, I mean, yes, I was working a lot. And what did I ever have burnout? Yes, I've had burnout. But I wasn't burned out and said, so I think I'll coach because it's not like, I'm still like, when I think about it, I believe I put myself out here even more now. I think this is more vulnerable even than it was when I could be at work doing what everybody did under protocols and getting a W-2 paycheck. Like now, like it's me. Right. And so, so then that became, that became exciting to me. I'm like, well, that seems challenging. And remember what I said, I'm like, yeah, if it's challenging, I'm going to go after it because I don't want to feel insecure. So, so I think it's, I think it's meeting you where you are. And then I think it's, like I said, like, what are the big themes coming up for you? Is it, is it what other people think? Is it your identity? What are you afraid of something? Are you holding yourself back? Cause you're actually afraid to take the next step forward because you're worried. Maybe, are you worried financially? Are you worried um, from like a relationship standpoint? Are you worried about how you'll view yourself or, you know, so there's like so much to uncover there, but I think it's like just going through the steps of, first of all, like knowing in your heart, what you want to do, and then identifying the obstacles that are saying you shouldn't do it. I love it. And I, I, to the person who asked the question, put in a clarifying question if we're, if we're not meeting your needs, but for me, like the concept of having your own back, right is huge in this. And it's like, when we care so much about what other people say versus like, I have my own back in this, I've got this. And then like everything else just kind of becomes like more muffled noise than like strong voices telling you what to do. I love that. That's really good. Yeah. And it, it, I like simple and that simplifies it for me too, just the way you said it. When you just for your, your personal experience, so you, you had like the common thing that we'd all have of like, what's everybody going to think? I'm going to be a pariah. I, you know, I'm not going to be a real air quotes, real actor. And then you actually did it. Um, were the people like, hey, that's cool. And then you were like, what was I really worried about? Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, was it as bad in real life as, it, as you had created it in your head? You know, um, from my perspective, it was almost better. Like people were like, that was kind of bold, you know, like that was kind of different. That was kind of cool. Like, I don't know. I felt like I kind of felt cool for, for a minute just because, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, like I said, you, you do get a little vulnerable. You do have to put yourself out there. It's not without risk. I mean, I essentially had a really stable, like, you know, good earning job and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll try So it, right. So I think it is bold. And I think that um, because of it, I think that people are interested. And so I have made more connections with people um, since doing it. More physicians who maybe never would have thought about doing something else are kind of coming out of the woodwork and just kind of asking. And I'm seeing it more and more Um, and not even necessarily like coaching. I mean, a lot of coaches, yes, but just other ideas on things and they feel heard and they feel like they have a safe space to talk about their creativity and to talk about things that actually do interest them. And so I don't know, in my opinion, it like, yeah, it was actually way better. And now my, now like my, cause I remember like, no joke, my dad would say, well, you better keep moonlighting at the hospital in case this little thing doesn't work out. Like he would say that. And I was like, okay. And I believed that for a while. I believed like, okay, I better do that because like, 
this is, I mean, the, the economy these days, I mean, how am I going to, right? You start, because when you're running your own business, right, there's all these other things you have to think about. Um, but while all that may be true, I still sit, stay in the same place of impact. And how can I continue to create things that can bring impact? And I think if I stay there, then that's really powerful. And then I think overall, like the other people, you know, like you asked, like, what were they thinking? I think that they start to create more impact, right? Like, and they, and they start to just, even if they keep the same job and do the same thing, they do it, they do it differently or they do it more intentional or so it's just this, this upward spiral of, yeah. Yeah. It was like, instead of you being worried what they thought, they actually saw you as brave. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Well, actually, and then my dad was like, well, maybe I should be a coach. (laughs) No, but this is the best part. He was like, I found one online for $99. Perfect. I'm like, that's a great start to it. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So she asked, what does your husband think about coaching? Oh my gosh. So my husband, oh my gosh, this is such a great question. I should, I should have brought him in to talk about it. So he actually thinks coaching is amazing. Um, so he is a psychiatrist. He's a child and adolescent psychiatrist. His expertise is actually in uh, genetics of psychiatry. So he prescribes all his medications based on genetics, which is really amazing. And it's done a couple of things. So as a psychiatrist, he thinks it's amazing. In fact, one day I had to do a session in our dining room and him and his colleague, his partner, his partner is a psychiatrist, obviously walked in and, and, and they saw I was in a session, they walked out and, um, the partner was like, um, what was she, was she doing CBT in there? Like, is because like, not saying like I, I was not, obviously I was coaching, but it's, but I'm telling you the tools are very similar. And so he thinks it's amazing because whereas in psychiatry, a lot of the times, you know, he is a therapy first doctor. So he does a lot of therapy, CBT, but there's something said on, you know, we're, we're for the most part, like I mean, somebody might have a psychiatrist and a coach, but as a coach, we're helping them see the thoughts and then move forward on it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we're going back in time a little bit, but in general, so it's a very proactive in in his opinion, it's, it's a very proactive approach, really healing in the same way. He became a coach through the mind firm method, which is like very similar. So it's still the model, the whole bit. Um, So he did it because he believes in it so much and he does do some coaching, but he's not out there like doing a ton of coaching. He has a full practice, but he has plenty of, um, he does have male physicians that come to him that maybe, um, you know, they like are done like him tr- as a treating physician. Cause he would never do both, but like, would it transition into a coaching relationship? Sometimes it does. And so he's a huge fan, huge fan. And especially because psychiatry has become so overwhelmed in the past couple of years that anything we can be doing to really help promote the mental health especially of our, like of our doctors. Right. And that's, that's why I think, I mean, for me, I, I am in the physician space, but it is because I want impacted medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but same, so he's huge proponent, huge fan. Um, and I think he would do a whole lot more of it if he did not have a full practice, but he's actually doing coaching. I think for him, because now that he's been through the process, he has now become quite a good photographer and videographer. And he's really opened up his creative side and he really enjoys doing like video editing and, um, 
a lot of like a lot of the stuff that I've ignored for a really long time, like he's starting to gain an interest in it. And so I think it for him, he has seen how it's opened up this other channel. He has a podcast where he interviews musicians. It's like not even physician related, no but it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And does he take the photos of you? Yeah. They're really good. Well, thank you. He just started. He literally just started and he has, he's bought a lot of equipment and, um, he's like, um, so I may have bought another filter lens <laughs> and I'm like, listen, you buy whatever you need. It's totally fun, but he really enjoys doing it. And so he's, he's playing around with it. He just would love to have more time for it. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, he, when he, when we go, when we travel and he comes, he, he does all the pictures. And so now I, I use, a, I use, that's what I use. That's awesome. Do you think coaching for him helped him realize that creativity was an important part of his life? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think also it helped him to cut back at his psychiatry practice. He was actually with two other practices plus his own and he quit both of those and just has his own now. Um, and Good coaching Lord. helped him. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, when I say like we were overscheduled a bit, like it was a little bit rough there for a bit, but he now is kind of He's actually hiring other psychiatrists to work his practice because he wants more time to do the creative things. We were walking in Florida during the midst of the pandemic. We rented a house for a whole month and um, because the kids weren't in school and we could work remotely. And he said, in about a year, I'm going to give up these other two practices. And I'm like, why don't you do it tomorrow? And he was like, oh, okay. (laughs) He's noticed the next day. Wow. And it was, I mean, it's because I think he saw like that. I would like you asked, like, well, what did other people say when you did it and how do they react? Well, it's because he saw me be courageous and do that took a risk. And he was like, I want more of time with my girls. I want more of a family life. I want, I want to have a life. I want to take, he's, you know, right now he's working on, you know, taking care of his own health. Like he wants to you know, re- get healthier himself. And so he realized he had to make some changes. So. Yeah. Oh, well to wrap it up for like the last couple of minutes that we have, let's go back to that time scarcity thing, because what I see a lot when I coach really busy frazzled docs is like this concept of time scarcity. And I love, I love it. Like the getting coached on time scarcity changed my life, but there are some doctors truly working 80, 90, like insane. To me, I almost like want to always check that because I never want to be like time scarcity is a mental construct when like they're they're literally working themselves to death. Like, how do you navigate that for in like two minutes? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a strategy because I totally recognize that as well. Well, first of all, like we're having discussions on, and are we, are we going to keep doing this? Like, so is this, are you okay? Like we, we have that discussion, but then to temper it over, I have a three to one strategy. And basically what I say is, listen, if you don't have any time and I get that because, because maybe some of you don't like, you're going to use the strategy. And so essentially what they do is every day in the morning, they're going to take two minutes. That's all it takes. Two minutes. They're going to make a list three, two, one. They're going to write three things that they have to do that day. And I don't mean like go to work. I mean, like the the stuff that like annoys us, like I have to go to the bank. I have to, you know, drop this package off. I have to write a thank you note, like literally the things that are just junk in our brains, but like only we can do it. If it's, if you can delegate it or, or not do it at all, just delegate it or not do it at all. But if you have to do it, you're the only one that can do it. 
three things you have to do that day. If you have more than three, we, we, we have to refigure something out. We have to, we have to learn how to delegate, but three things you have to do only you can do two things you want to do. This is really important because if we're working that many hours, it's not going to be sustainable. You have to do at least two things every day that you want to do. These can be five minute things. I want to take a five minute bath. I want to read for five minutes. I want to work out for 20 minutes. I want to, um, I want to call my friend for 15, two things you want to do. And then one thing that you're willing to leave on the to-do list. So this is something that only you can do. And if you put it in the three category, it would take you to four. So we don't want to do that. So we're going to do one thing that has to get done, but you're able to leave it on the to-do list. Cause that's going to teach us that, you know what, if it's not an emergency, it can wait. And I think a lot of times that's really difficult for many of us that just want to get it done. We want to off our plate. We're already multitasking. We don't want anything else above us. Um, but that three, two, one strategy is, is really effective to kind of temper. So if you really are like, I really have to exercise, but I literally have no time. Okay, great. Set the clock for 10 minutes. You're going to, or maybe your two things you want to do is to hit your 10,000 steps or hit your 3000 steps or hit your 5,000 steps. But I think the three, two, one is a way that at least you can take back a little bit of power. I love it. Very tangible, actionable items to wrap it up. Thank you so much for meeting with us today. Oh my gosh, this was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Totally. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming today. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks.